official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, the Slugfest! You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. Oh, the Battlecast! And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Irene! Welcome to episode 10 of K1 Battlecast. This week, we present an exclusive interview between Michael Chavello and revered guru of Dutch kickboxing, Tom Herrick. Now, throughout his career, Tom has been a pivotal figure in shaping the destinies of numerous fighters and champions. His guidance has been crucial in the journeys of legends like the first-ever K1 champion, Bronco Sigatik, as well as the iconic Mr. K1 himself, Peter Ertz. We hope you enjoy this intimate look into Tom Herrick's storied career. <laughs> Right now, we head over to the Netherlands, where we are joined by one of the greatest kickboxing trainers of all time, a man whose name is synonymous with K1 history, the one and only, the godfather of Dutch Muay Thai himself, Tom Herring. Tom, great to see you, my friend. Very good. I'm happy to speak with you now, after a long time, yes. <laughs> oh, it's been a long time since we've spoken to each other. Let's take a trip down memory lane. And Tom, I want to go back to 1993 and how you first heard about this amazing tournament called K1 that invited all the best heavyweights from around the world to compete in Japan. What were your thoughts when you first heard about K1 and your fighters, Branko and Peter Ertz, were invited to the first K1? Uh, you know what happened when uh, Mr. Ishii called me for, uh, or his secretary to ask me to come uh, competition in Japan? I have to go with one fighter, and that was Peter Arts. And of course, Peter was very good, the, the champion, and we trained hard for that. And then about uh, 10 days before the fight, Mr. Ishii called me again. He said, Tom, do you have another heavyweight? Because one of the fighters was sick and he pull out. So I said, yes, I have a fighter. And that was Branko Sikatic, already 38 years old. But he was training in my gym with Peter and my other fighters. So I said, yes, I have one. The name from Croatian guy is Branko Sikatic. He said, oh, that's great. So you can come and invite you with Peter Arts and Branko Sikatic. So Branko was only the last 10 days knowing that he can fight there. I do wonder Given that information, if Branko was the replacement fighter for Stan the Man Longanides, because Stan the Man Longanides was invited to the tournament and actually broke his arm and couldn't compete at the last moment. So I do wonder if Branko got the call up because of Stan the Man Longanides' injury. Oh, that was it. Yeah, I didn't know who, who was the fighter who was going out, but uh, Stan the Man is a fantastic fighter and uh, we know him. He was in also in Japan many times and Branko fought with him in wow. Australia. I, I was going to say, Tom, this is interesting because I, I, I would have said at the time in 1993, Branko Sikitik was the bigger name worldwide than Peter Ertz. I remember when Branko came to Australia to fight Stan the Man, I remember a young Peter Ertz being in the corner of Branko Stikatik as part of the corner crew. So for us in Australia and in a lot of the other parts of the world, we all knew Branko as the guy who'd fought Stan, the guy who'd fought Dennis Alexio in a controversial match against Alexio. We knew Branko. We didn't really know Peter Ertz as much, but I know Peter was a big deal in, in, in Holland at the time. Yeah, because Peter was a very young boy that time. He was only 18 years and Branko was 20 years older than him. But of course, in the in our dojo, they sparring a lot together. So there was very good to get an high level because that. 
Would you say that going into that first tournament in 1993, uh, did you consider Peter as a favourite and did you consider Branko as a favourite? No, I see more, I think, was Peter Ars was the, the favourite man to get uh, the winner of this tournament because he was very hungry, he was young. But of course, Branko had a lot of experience and Branko was unbelievable strong with his punch. He knocked out every in every fight in Europe. He knocked out all the, the opponents of him. But it was a surprise that, of course, he kept the title there and he won the tournament in 1993 the first time. You know, Tom, you've seen every K1 Grand Prix win in history. You've analyzed them. Uh, many of them you coached yourself. Branko's win still flies under the radar for a lot of fans, maybe because it was the first time. But as you said, it was one of the most destructive wins in the history of K1 in that Branko stopped everybody in a very tough tournament and did it so effectively with highlight reel knockouts. His knockout in the final of Ernesto Hoost remains one of the greatest knockouts in K1 history. Yeah, uh, he did that two times with Ernesto Hoos. So, so after his farewell fight, he get a fight again with Hoos and he knocked him out again. And Hoos told me also, he said, I don't know, but this man, I can never beat him. He was very honestly, you know. And Branco was a sharp eye. He was looking very well. And sometimes Branco take a punch to give you the punch. But when you get the punch from him, you get KO. For sure. <laughs> very, very true. What what was your reaction and what was Peter's reaction after losing in the, the, the 93 Grand Prix so early and not making it through to the final? No, it was not so big deal, you know, because uh, Peter was a very young boy and I was thinking and I told my fighter, your time will come. And it was come because in 1994, 1995, he won the K1 again, Peter Art. So, you know, Let's talk about that because, as you said, Peter became the first ever back-to-back -back champion. He won it in 94 for the first time. He won it in 95 for the second time, both times very resounding wins. How was it a different Peter Ertz in 94 and 95 than the Peter Ertz who had fought in 93? What was different about Peter? Well, I think it was more the experience that he had more the fights. You know, of course, he was very nervous. He was a very young boy when he fought in 1993. And he had a lot of respect, like for Branco. It was more like a father for him, you know. They, they uh, uh, spar together, they fight together. But, of course, he looked very up to Branco. So it was not bad that Branco win that because Branco 38 years. And I know the time will come for Peter. And I, we prove it because after that, Peter was the man, and Branko caught a little bit back. So that was no problem, you know. I do want to say to fans that if you look at the record of Peter Ertz and uh, go back to 1993, his loss against Ernesto Hoost, after that, Peter Ertz went on one of the most spectacular runs in kickboxing history. He remained undefeated until I believe it was around, uh, it may have been, I think in March of 1996 or May of 96, we eventually lost to Mike Bernardo. But during that yes. reign from 1993, the end of 93 through to 96, he defeated the likes of uh, Rob Van Esdonk a couple of times, Patrick Smith, yes. Sataki, uh, Frank yeah. Lobman, uh, Kirkwood Walker, Atokawa, Ernesto, Jerome Labana, Sam Greco. He defeated Mike yes. Bernardo the first time. I mean, that was a crazy period for you and Peter. You were the most dangerous combination in the world of kickboxing back then. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and of course, when he lost to Mike Bernardo after that, I must tell you honestly, and 
Peter and even my son, they was not training so good. They was going out in, you know, they get famous. They go to discotheques. They go to bars. They drinking. So it was a little bit uh, their own uh, shame that they was not so good that time. But after that, he lose. He know that I talk with Peter and I said, listen, if you want to be a professional, you must be as the same as before in 1993. And he understand. And then he started training serious. And then he came back again. You see, then he beat also Andy Hook. He beat that after that. So he became better and better again. Let's talk about the 1994 K1 World Grand Prix, another fabulous tournament. Uh, Peter defeats... Rob Van Esdonk by knockout in the third round. Then he knocks out Patrick Smith in one round. Then he decisions Masaki Satake in the final. How much pressure was there in that final? Because once again, Satake was built up as the Japanese god. All the hopes of an entire nation, and I'm sure the hopes of K1 were on Satake to become the the great you know heavyweight hero of K1 for Japan, which never happened. How much pressure was there on you and Peter, especially in that 1994 final against Sataki? Yeah, there was a lot of pressure, of course, because we know also that it was a hometown fight. You know, the Japanese really want to do everything to get a Japanese champion. And of course, it was Mr. Ishii, eh? Saido Kaikan, against Shakuriki. We get in the three years before there a very big name because we beat everybody. So everybody was trying to lose the our boys. And I know the fight before that was Branko with Satake. It was a draw, but they give the winning to Satake. You know, so I told Peter, you must really beat him. Otherwise, they let you lose that fight. So the pressure was quite high. But Peter is a farmer. He's very cool. And he said, oh, no problem, Sensei. I do. I will do. You know how he is. Sometimes I don't understand Peter because he had a slang. He's not from Amsterdam. He was from the south of Holland. And he came every day training to my gym. Uh, about two hours traveling by car, but uh, he he's cool, you know. He don't mind. I think other fighters was more nervous than Peter. Peter said, "Well, I beat him. I beat him. No problem." That's Peter Arts. Uh, that's why he became Mister K One and so beloved by fans. You know, you mentioned Branko Sikatik in that tournament, Tom, losing to Sataki very controversially. Do you yes. think if Branko? hadn't started his K1 career as a 38-year-old. Do you think if he'd started as a 28-year-old that Branko could have had a long run and become a multiple-time K1 world champion? Oh, that's for sure. That's that's was a pity that, you know, his farewell fight, he was 43 years old and he beat Ernesto Hoost again on knockout. But I'm sure that if Branko was the age of Peter Ash, <laughs> there was a big competition about these two fighters for my gym. So a little bit good maybe for Peter that Branko was older. <laughs> I want to ask you this question, and I know you don't want to answer this, but I want you to please answer it for me. Branko in his prime versus Peter Ertz in his prime. Who would have won that fight? Yeah, you know, that's very difficult. Of course, many people ask me this also now when Peter was in his uh, big uh, time, how he fight with Bader Harry or with other fighters. It's hard to say, you know, Branko needs one punch. One punch. But Peter is a man, he's he's a machine. If Peter starts warming up, you see many fights, if he knock he not knock out you in the first round, Peter, the first round, always get many punches. But that wakes him up. 
Peter was, he, he needs some punches to wake up to get a good fight. So it will be very hard to tell who will be the fighter. I think it must be the, 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 the fit of the day who can beat each other, I think. That's really very difficult to tell you. <laughs> In, uh, in 1995, Peter becomes the first ever back-to-back -back K1 Grand Prix champion. Now, this is another great tournament. Uh, first of all, he beats Atokawa of Japan. He knocks him out in one round. Then he gets yeah. his revenge over Ernesto Hust and eventually knocks out Jerome Labana in one round in the final. Tell me about the rematch with Ernesto Hust, who he'd lost to uh, in the original K1 tournament in '93. And how did you guys go about beating Ernesto in the in the 95 tournament? Yeah, you know, of course, I know Ernesto, who's very good. They're from the same city. And I was studying a lot of how he is fighting. And the first time he lose from Ernesto, but I'm sure that Peter was stronger. I mean, Ernesto is Mr. Technique. He has fantastic technique, he has combinations. You know, he feels how to fight. But Peter, when you get pressure on him, then host get problems. So I told Peter, you cannot leave him one minute. Same like Peter fight with Sam Schild. If you let Sam Schild fight, you have no chance. But when you go real like street fighting, you must go put the pressure on, then you can beat Ernesto Hoost. And it happens how we was doing the training in our gym. The final against Jerome Labana is one all-time fan favorite win of Peter Ertz. Uh, what do you remember about that final and about that fight against Jerome? Yeah, you know, we all know that Jerome was a very strong puncher. He was a better puncher than a kicker. And uh, everybody was surprised because they think we can beat him with a punch on the head. I said, no, he has a strong head too. You must beat him in the body. And it happened because he knocked him out in the body with a straight right punch, you know. And it was all what we did in the gym with Branco. So Branco was doing like he was Jerome Le Banner, you know, and Peter was training and Prove the long right direction, and it happens. So <laughs> it was a fantastic uh, final for us. Tom, can you take us through uh, an average week of training for Peter Ertz at his prime? What did it look like? What were you guys doing? How many times a day were you training? What sort of training were you doing? Now, in the morning, always, we had 9 o'clock in my dojo, in my gym. We training with all the fighters. And then we start about 15 minutes rope jumping. Uh, we did back training. We did pets training. And then we did the last half hour, a lot of sparring. And uh, in the evening, they come about 7 o'clock again in my dojo. And they do a lot of technical training, combinations. And between that, they have to running. They have to do weight training. I had also a lot of uh, weight uh, lifting in my in my gym. So they train three times a day, very serious. They were real professionals that time. That sparring you talked about, we've all heard these stories of the legendary Dutch sparring, how the sparring in the Netherlands is as hard as a real fight. Is that true? Was that true in the case back in the 90s with Peter Ertz? Were, were the sparring sessions hard? And who were some of the other fighters we'd know that he was sparring? Now, we, we had a lot of uh, heavyweights. Uh, they are not so famous, but, you know, I had a fighter. I'm 100% sure if he was put in the ring with the competition, he was the 10 times world champion. But he was so nervous but that he cannot fight in the ring. But in the dojo, he was fantastic to spar. His name was Andre Tete, was a big black guy. But, you know, they call it meat day. When And for us, it was normal because my system was like that. We did sometimes in two times a week, one hour only sparring. 
And then the, the big champions have to go in the ring with three fighters. And every minute he get a new fighter. So wow. Peter Ars had to fight Branco. He had to fight uh, Andre Tete. He had to fight uh, another guy, Menno Dijkstra or something. So it means they were really like Hesti Kerkers too. They were so used to, to fight hard. And when somebody came from another gym and they said, this is not normal what you're doing. But we were <laughs> used to it. We 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 find it normal, and I know that sometimes, like Hesty, one time beat Bader Harry, you know, and Bader yes. kicked on the ground. Hesty told me the sparring in the dojo was harder than the fight with Bader I had in the ring, and that wow. was my goal. You know, they was used to it. They know the punches, they know they get pressure, but they was they was not afraid to do that. And I think that was one of the huge success what we had with the heavyweights. But you talk about the heavyweight. I had a lot of lightweights and middleweights like Perry Ubeda, Gilbert Ballantini, who fought in Thailand. Oh, so I, I love Gilbert Ballantine. Gilbert Ballantine was one of my all-time favorites. Fantastic. He he was fighting with uh, Shang Chiang Noi, with many Dok Mai Pai. He fought uh, really the best Thais in the world. He was one of the pioneers, wasn't he, Tom? He was one of the pioneers from the Western world to go to Thailand. Thailand and fight the ties in Muay Thai. Gilbert Ballantyne, I think, was one of the first. Yes, and, and that was before 1993 already, yep. you know, because my gym is from 1972. And about uh, five years, I go with five boys to Thailand. We was beat. Everybody was knocked out. I was ashamed because we were the best fighters in Europe that time. And I go with five lightweights and the, the ties that beat the hell out of us. So I sent my boys back and I stayed three months in Thailand to train the techniques. You know, now if you want to know, you put internet and you can look. But that time there was no internet. So we didn't know that the Thai people with elbows and knees, they were so very good, you know. I was ashamed that I lose. But I stayed three months in Sichatong, uh, other uh, gyms and I get all my techniques. I go back to my gym in Holland and I train my fighters and Balotini was one of the first fighters who beat the Thai fighters, you know. And Perry Ubeda also and taking oh, Don Perry Ubeda, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, this is, this, this is so amazing talking to you because for those new fans to the sport of kickboxing and Muay Thai and, and K1, you've just heard history and how it was made. This is the story of how Muay Thai came to the Western world from Thailand back to Holland via the likes of Gilbert Ballantyne, via Tom Harrink. I mean, he's Tom Harrink, 80 years old now, and you're talking about the godfather of Dutch Muay Thai, the man that wrote the book called The Godfather of Dutch Muay Thai. And this is how it all started. There would have been no K1. There would be no kickboxing as we know it today. No Butter Hurry, no Semi Schult, no Ernesto Hoos, no Peter Ertz. No Ramon Decker, if it wasn't for these guys going to Thailand yeah. in those early days yeah. and bringing it back to Holland. So we all owe a big debt of gratitude, Tom, to you and all of those fighters back then. We really do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very happy. And now there is something very news now in Holland. I just, when I have this uh, podcast with you now, one hour ago, I was uh, with the Dutch television. All I, you know, I I keep everything. I I, I save all my documents. I was the, the the chairman of the Dutch Muay Thai Association, the Dutch Kickboxing Association, and now everything is in the Dutch Archive from Holland. 
So that is very good because kickboxing was always on a very low level. In Holland, it's football, skating, you know. But now everybody can see the developing from 1972 till now. I get all the photos to the archive in the Dutch government. So everybody is now together. And I'm very happy with that. For the sport. It is absolutely wonderful and a credit to you. Let's talk about some of the other fighters you trained over the K1 days. Uh, in what year did Jerome LeBanner start training with you? Now, Jerome Banner had a fight with Sam Schild, and then he was knocked out in the first round by a front kick. And uh, of course, I know Jerome because you, you see each other in, in, uh, in Japan. And then he asked me, I said, Sensei, can I train with you because uh, I lose my fight and I not feel confidence. I have no good trainers in France, in Paris. I said, of course, everybody is welcome in my fight. And that time I had a lot of heavyweights. Eh? Also Raul Katinas, Frank Munoz. I had uh, André Tete, Branko Sikertis, Peter Arts, some other people who were not so famous, but good boys. So I had about 20 heavyweights. So Jerome came in my gym. He rent a house here with his girlfriend and he stayed two years and he had a fight when he was with me after his lose with Tyron Spong, with Kohan Saki, with, yeah, with many, and he all win again because our system has the characters that time also train in my gym. And even he was older and even, you know, Peter and Jerome, sometimes I have to say to my new heavyweights, be careful with them. They older, not too hard. So even we was very respectful to them that we not train too hard because of course they get blessures and so, but Jerome get much better. And yet I think seven fights with me and he win all seven fights. I think he yeah. also beat uh, Thomas Novak during that reign. Uh, Stefan Leko, yeah. if I remember. I think yeah. he had a win yeah. over Masayoshi Kakutani as well. It was a very, very good period for Jerome Labana. Yes, that's right. He came back very good. We had a fight even in one of the, the islands, what was a colony from France. He fought there a Russian guy for the world title. He knocked him out. Yeah, I had a very good time that uh, two years with Jerome. Yeah. Uh, that's right. He beat uh, Vitaly Akramento, I think it was, uh, for the, if I remember, the WKN world title back then in St. Tropez. And he knocked him out in the second round in, in about just under two minutes. It was it was a wonderful right. period for Jerome. Tom, would you say, would you agree that Jerome is the greatest K1 fighter to never win the K1 World Grand Prix? Or is it somebody else? No, no, I, I think so. Because Andy Hook win one time, I remember. Now, Jerome should be in the list of the champions, I think. He was it, a it, little it's, bit... It's, it's a list that may include people like Jerome Labana, Ray Sefo, Badahari, Musashi... I think they're the main ones you'd have to look at, Mike Bernardo even, that came close yep. but didn't win it. And I, I, I always pose that question, was Jerome or maybe Ray Sefo, who was the best one to never get, maybe Bada Hurry, who was the best to never become the K1 World Grand Prix champion? It's a it's a big debate. Now, when when I must be honestly, when Bada trained in my gym, I trained five years Bada Hurry, yeah? they, they don't know. Yes, which people. I wanted to ask you about next. So please do tell me more about training Bada. Yeah, you know, but at that time when uh, my boys had the K1 win, I said, we had an interview in Holland. I said, he shit the man. And that was Bader Harry. He was 18 years old. He will be five times 
the K1 winner. And I mean at that time, he was so talentful. But yeah, unfortunately, by the leave my gym, they 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 bought bought him away. They give him a house and they give him a car. I'm just a poor trainer. I cannot give my fighters things, you know. I had my family. I must make my money with my gym. So he left. But I'm sure when Butter stay in my gym with all my other champions, Butter will be the the K1 champion he deserved, but it never happened. And after him, I think that Jerome Lebanon was the man who really had to be the K1 champion one time. Was Bada difficult to train at all? Because I remember when he was young, he was so cocky. He really was a cocky young man after he, he knocked out Stefan Lecco in Japan. Uh, I remember jumping on the bus back to the hotel in Tokyo after he knocked out Lecco. I was on the bus with Ernesto with Ray Sefo, and I think Peter was on the bus as well. And Bada yeah. stood up on the bus, and he went up to Ray, and he said, hey, Ray Sefo, how old are you? And Ray said his age. He goes, oh, I'm going to knock you out. You're too old. Hey, Ernesto, how old are you? Ernesto told his age, and Bada goes, oh, you're an old man, Ernesto. I'm going to knock you out. And I never heard anyone speak like that before to these legends. I mean, later Bada would mature. He'd learn to respect these legends. But back then, he was very, very cocky. Now, I, I tell you honestly, when Bada came in my gym, he was 14 years old. 14? 14, one four. Yeah. Wow. One four. And he was, you know, he was a Maroc boy from uh, a place in Holland uh, where it's a little bit many gangs and many uh, not so good boys. But I must tell you honestly, he was five years training with me. He came in my house because he was always on the street. So he was like a son for me, you know. And for me, never get a problem with him. Always respectful. I must really tell. And even in the gym, I don't let this do. If if I what he did in the bus, what you told me, I don't allow that as a trainer. I want that you respect the other fighters. In the ring, you can knock out everybody, but outside you must be behave yourself. And he did. But when he left my gym, he had fights on the street. He was in the police. He was in, in jail. You know, nobody can touch him. But he had so much respect because I was much older. He eat in my house. You know, he was very respectful. My wife was like a mother for him. My children was like his brothers and sisters. So in that time, he never did. But when he left my gym... I was really surprised by myself. He was terrible. He respect nobody. I remember even he trained many different gym. By Manat, he trained. He trained um, a lot in my gym, another gym. And he called the trainer and said, yeah, come, I want to train. Do you think that my fighters call me, said, you have to come to train? I tell my fighters when they must train. Nine o'clock and not one minute too late. I remember Jerome Lebanon one time came too late about five minutes and we were straining, jumping. Uh, and then he came and I looked to him. I said, 100 push-ups, what do you think? And he was already world champion, you know? Yeah. And we had we had a barbecue a couple of weeks after that and he told my wife, I didn't know, he said, oh, Mayan, my wife is Mayan. He said, you know, I came five minutes too late. I looked through the eyes of Tom Haring. I was afraid of him. I think he wanted to kill me. But I want to tell you, <laughs> The respect you have for your fighters. I'm the boss and you do what I tell you. It's, it's autocratic, I know, but in the fight sport, you need that. So I was very surprised that Butter got crazy that time. He was on television, in the newspaper, but only bad news for the kickboxing. Now he's better because he's getting older and he understands it, you know. Of but course, I don't I, allow... Yeah, and I agree. I, I think that, you know, Butter, as cocky as he started off, he got humbled 
very quickly when when Peter Graham knocked him out very badly in, in Auckland, he got humbled. When he lost to Correa for the first time, he was humbled. And really, as you go back through K1 history from that era, it's a beautiful thing to see Bada Hari mature after getting beaten, getting his jaw broken, the way he came back to compete again, to almost conquer the entire world, but the way he matured into a fan favorite. Uh, he, he started to do a lot of work in the community, a lot of very good positive work as well. And to see him become the human being that he grew up to become is really an inspirational story and the power of martial arts, I believe, and the power of kickboxing to be able to do that to someone's life and turn him around from a, like you said, from a street thug into a genuine, yeah. caring, yeah. mature, good, wholesome human being. Yeah, that, but that is the good way of the kickboxing sport, you know, because the discipline and respect is number one, I think. That's very hard. In, in my gym, there is so much discipline. Don't talk, don't drink, don't uh, shout, you know. It's normal. And, I, of course, now Butter has children from himself, and then they get more uh, brains and they understand this. Uh, the same with Hesti Kerkers. Hesti was a very bad boy that time. For me, he's. Oh, I just this week I had coffee with him. He lived about ten minutes from my house, and he's a fantastic boy. And how he go to schools to uh, warning the boys: don't be criminal, don't do that. You come in jail. That is not the good life. So he also was a bad boy. But this sport bring you to the good things. I hope. And of course, they are now an example how you have to behave in your life. That's very important. Tom, apart from the K1 fighters you trained, did you have another favorite K1 fighter you enjoyed being around or you enjoyed their style of fighting outside of the guys you trained? Who would who would be your favorite K1 fighter? No, yeah. You know, I always had a lot of respect for Ray Sefu. I yeah. tell you, I, I like him a lot. Uh, his fight style, I remember he had a lot of brothers. It was a big fight family, you know. He had I a huge entourage. Every time he fought a big entourage. <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, and and he's a very nice man. He's very humble. Very, I, I like him a lot. It's a pity I I don't see him anymore because Australia is too far, you know. But he was a fantastic man. Yeah, I think. But all the fighters in that time they were good. Even uh, the boy from New Zealand, Mark Hunt. Mark you know? Hunt, yes. And the nice thing, his trainer was a woman. She trained in my gym for about one year. Lucy Tui. Lucy, yeah, and she yeah. was training in my gym, and she was so fantastic, and she know the Chakuriki style, and yes. I know too that she trained with, with Mark Hunt, the system I did, and he was a hell of a fighter, Mark. Oh, yes, so, so Lucy Tui, for you listeners who don't know, a bit of a legend in Australia, she passed away a few years ago, affectionately oh, known as, as Auntie Lucy, yes, she passed away a few years ago now, she was oh. living in Sydney. Uh, she fostered a lot of children. She was known as Auntie Lucy, but she was a pioneer of kickboxing in Australia. She had trained in yeah. Holland with Tom Harrings. She won many championships and she discovered Mark Hunt. And I still remember the first time that Lucy Tui introduced me to this young Samoan named Mark Hunt back in, I believe, 1999 when Mark was fighting at the Crown Casino in Melbourne against Chris Chrysopolides. And Lucy said to me, oh, Mike, you've got to come backstage and meet my new fighter, this Samoan guy called Mark Hunt from New Zealand. I said, okay, Auntie Lucy, I'll come back and meet him. And I went backstage at Crown Casino and Mark Hunt was sitting there. He was a big, I thought, look, I thought at the time, and I've said this to Mark, I thought, who is this big fat palooka sitting there <laughs> listening to his Walkman? He had zero personality. And I thought this big palooka is going to go out there and just, he's here for a holiday. He's going to get knocked out. 
He went out there <laughs> yeah. and destroyed Chris Chrysopolides. Shortly yeah. after, he became a K1 Oceania champion. Then he became a two-time K1 Oceania champion. Then he became the K1 World Grand Prix champion. He hadn't yeah. even been yeah. kickboxing for three years. So, you know, Lucy, to his discovery, ended up being one of the one of the all-time legends of K1. And I'm really glad you you bring up the memory of Lucy Tui. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, I'm 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 a little bit sad. She passed away. Yeah, she she was she was a sweetheart. Tom, I'll let you go in a moment. I know it's late over in, in the Netherlands. I do want to ask though, and I know you may be a little biased on this uh this answer, but who was the greatest K1 champion of all time? Now it's maybe crazy to say because he's my own boy, but I I think the man from the K1 also the face is Peter Arts, I think, really. I think Peter is uh, really the, the best fighter. Uh, the people love him. Even now, I know that the people don't know the K1, but everybody remember Peter Arts. So I think the most impressive fighter for me was Peter Arts. You know, Tom, you're right when you say that everybody still remembers Peter Ertz. And as I said earlier, there's a reason why Peter Ertz is called Mr. K1. It is the house that Peter Ertz built. And um, just on that topic, I was at the K1 Rebirth show in September at the Yokohama Arena. And Peter Ertz was there and we said hello and I, I let him jump on air with me in commentary for a couple of rounds. Then he went into the ring to present an award. And there's this very viral, very famous clip on the internet now of Peter Ertz in the ring presenting the award for the champion and the ring girl standing behind him, the Japanese ring girl, the K1 ring girl, she can be no older than 19 or 20 years old. And as soon as she sees that it's Peter Ertz standing in front of her, her eyes almost pop out of her head. To me, that is perfect indication of the impact that Peter had on every generation in Japan, yeah. in, in, in around the world, but especially in Japan, that this 19, 20-year-old girl was just gobsmacked that she was standing a few feet away from Mr. K1 yeah. Peter Ertz. It just it speaks volumes about Peter, doesn't it? Yeah, he lives. He lives now in Japan, eh, Peter. Eh? He, he does. He does. He, he sold his gym here in Holland, and uh, I just uh, his son was fighting two weeks ago, and I had the honor to give the vocal to his son. He lost the son on points, but it was no, no, no big deal. Mm. And, but, what a great uh, name too, Marciano Ertz, huh? Yeah, yes, Marciano Ertz. He was fighting, and also his daughter Montana. His daughter Montana as well. Yes, Montana. Yeah, I also give the vocal one year ago in in another place of uh, Holland. They always ask me because they know I'm the trainer of Peter Ars before. Yeah. yeah. Hey Tom, you it's know not- how we know we're getting old. I remember meeting Montana Ertz backstage when she was still being pushed around in a pram by her mum when she came <laughs> over to one of the shows in Japan when she was a little baby. That's how old we are, brother. <laughs> yes, you can see the age coming up, eh? <laughs> Tom Harrink, you are a legend. You are the godfather of Dutch Muay Thai. You're a pioneer. You're one of the K1 greats. If there was a K1 Hall of Fame, I am sure the name Tom Harrink would be there. It has been such a pleasure talking to you on K1 Battlecast. Tom Harrink, thank you so much, brother. For me, the same. Thank you very much for this podcast. And I follow you always because I like you. You are one of the best commentators, I think, in the world for this sport. You also do a lot of good things for the sport. And I'm happy that I know you. And I hope that we see each other one time to drink the real buck of coffee. Yeah. Thank you, Tom (laughs) Harrink. There he is, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Tom Harrink from the Netherlands. All right, everyone. That's all for this week's show. We hope you enjoyed our interview with legendary coach Tom Harrink. Next Friday, we'll continue to dive into the amazing career of Mr. K-1 himself, 
Peter Aird says we take a look at when he won the 1998 K1 World Grand Prix Championship and went on to become K1's very first thrice crowned king. We'll also continue to delve into K1's past in an excerpt from Michael's interview with Paul the Sting Slowinski. And as always, we hope you'll join us each and every Friday as we bring you the latest news, reviews of K1's most glorious moments, and exclusive interviews with the top fighters in K1's vaunted history. Don't forget to connect with us via socials. Please feel free to check out the links in the show notes. Okay, everyone, until next time, this has been Jonathan Cheer, and you've been listening to K1 Battlecast. Have a great week, everybody.